Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, and welcome to the Night Prey podcast, where we shine light on the dark. Each episode, we present to you a case on all things true crime and paranormal. We'll be your hosts for this evening. My name is Glenn. And my name is Jan. And we work together here with the team at Night Parade Studio to bring you this show. But first, we've got a couple of announcements to make. Um, so, we have been noticing a couple issues we've been having with audio in the previous episodes. Um, we were able to upgrade our mics, and right now we're using these uh, pretty, pretty nice blue Yetis. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yeah. So, I mean... A nice, uh, nice upgrade. Uh, we're working harder to bring you a better, better, cleaner sound. <laughs> right, that's right. And also, if you guys can see, we have a new studio setup. That's right. We have upgraded to a bigger desk, so we are more comfortable while uh, telling you guys the story that yeah. we are telling. It just it feels more comfortable <coughs> just um, have uh, sitting up and uh, just having a, a table that's level over here. You know. Right. Exactly. And just uh, having what we need in front of us you know what i mean yes yeah um so anyways we hope uh, you guys have been enjoying the season so far every episode in our series of mysterious disappearances has left us has left us wondering what we what could have happened to such a large vessel uh this case is also shrouded in mystery and there are plenty of theories about who dan cooper really is right um but this case was actually never officially solved yeah yeah and for those of you tuning in with us for the first time, welcome to the Night Parade. This That's is right. the third case in our series of Mysterious Disappearances. Um, this is a very famous case in the West Coast that happened nearly half a century ago. People were perplexed at how someone could even pull such a daring stunt. Mm-hmm. And all the odds were attacked uh, or stacked against him, and nobody expected him to survive the jump that he made during the night but did he survive this job mm. or is his body lying somewhere undiscovered in the mountains along with the money Ooh. yeah so before anything else this is the case of db cooper let us get started let's do it all right all right so db cooper is an unidentified man who hijacked a Boeing 727 plane in the U.S. airspace between Portland, Oregon and Seattle, Washington. That afternoon, he extorted $200,000, which would be $1.3 million in today's standards, in ransom money, and parachuted to an uncertain fate over southwestern Washington. It was pitch black in the dead of night, <coughs> and the plane had to have been going around 200 miles per hour. Uh, all he had were loafers and a suit, you know? 
There were so many uh, people suspected of being Cooper. As usual, uh, we're just going to go over a general overview of the case based on the available articles and you know YouTube videos. Uh, we'll link down in the description below. And so, um, yeah. Yeah, we are gonna put up a um, picture or, or sketches that were made by the artist. These are um, a couple of first composite sketches made by basically the FD, uh, FD, FBI. I'm sorry, in order to identify Cooper. All right. So yeah, let's 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 jump into the story. Yeah. All right. So um, it happened on November twenty fourth, nineteen seventy one. It was Thanksgiving Eve, and a middle-aged man carrying a black Atashi case approached uh, the flight counter of Northwest Orient Airlines at Portland International Airport in Oregon. He introduced himself as Dan Cooper. He was described as middle-aged, probably, uh, probably mid-40s, wearing a business suit and a black tie. Uh, he purchased a one-way ticket flight uh, flight 305 to Seattle, Washington, and he paid in cash. Mm -hmm. <laughs> After taking his seat uh, in the plane, he orders a drink, a bourbon and soda. Uh, the plane only had about a third of its capacity. Uh, Cooper is sitting in the furthest to the back of the seating, where he is perfectly positioned to talk with the stewardess, mm -hmm. Florence Schaffner. Uh, he then proceeds to hand a note to her, which she assumes is his number because she thought that um, she was just hitting on him. Mm -hmm. He was just. <laughs> she thought that he was just hitting on her. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> At first, um, he she just dro drops the note in her purse without reading it. Then Cooper leans in and whispers to her, "Miss, uh, you'd better read that. I have a bomb." <clears throat> The, the exact wording of the note is unknown because Cooper would later reclaim the note, not wanting to leave any evidence. What we know is that he claimed that the bomb is in his briefcase. Um, Schaffner then sat beside Cooper as he quickly opened his briefcase, enough for her to see eight red cylinders, all attached with wires coated with insula insulation and a large cylindrical battery. Cooper quickly shut the case and began <coughs> listing his demands. Uh, Cooper demanded $200,000, four parachutes, two primary, two reserve, and a fuel truck ready in Seattle for them when they arrived, prepared to refuel for a second flight. Schaffner went to tell the captains of the plane when, he returned, uh, when she returned to Cooper was wearing sunglasses. Uh, one, one pilot... William A. Scott immediately contacted Seattle-Tacoma ATC, who alerted the police. Uh, none of the passengers were aware that the plane was even being hijacked. So that, that's pretty interesting. Yeah, that, is, that is interesting. Wow. <laughs> um, Donald Nerup was the president of Northwest Orient at the time and insisted everyone comply with Cooper's demands. He authorized them to give the ransom money. Hmm. Yeah, and uh, Cooper seemed to know the area well. He knew exactly when uh, they would be nearing McCord Air Force Base. Mm -hmm. uh, the flight crew described him as calm and polite. He, he ordered a second <coughs> bourbon and soda, paying for it and offering extra change. <laughs> uh, he then offered uh, to buy meals for the entire flight crew. It took two hours for the FBI to, to get together the ransom money. They offered uh, the mil they offered military parachutes to Cooper, but um, he rejected them, asking for civilian parachutes. 
uh, with manually operated rip cords, which they obtained from the local skydiving school. Ah, wow. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so that, that, that's interesting. He offered them to uh, to. Oh, or he offered to buy a meal for the entire crew, the the flight crew. That is, that shows you how polite he is. Yeah. Doing this hijacking, you know, you're hijacking a plane and you're not yelling, you're <laughs> ordering uh, scotch and soda, yeah. you know, to drink. And wow, <laughs> it's it's so funny that um, he would he would just do that, you know. Yeah. Like you would yeah. expect like a skyjacker to offer meals. To exactly. This. Wow, that's one <laughs> nice dude right there. <clears throat> well, um, they did a fuel stop and passenger release. So let, let's talk about that. At 5.24 p.m. PST, Cooper was informed that his demands had been met. And at 5.39 p.m., the aircraft landed at Seattle, Tacoma Airport. Cooper instructed Scott to taxi to, uh, or to taxi the jet to isolated, brightly lit section of the apron and close all window shades in the cabin to deter police snipers which is a smart move if you know he's doing the hijacking yeah. right um a guy named al lee approached the jet in uh, in street clothes so he wouldn't be mistaken for a police officer and delivered the net pack and parachute to mcclub the stewardess or flight attendant once the, del uh, the delivery was secured, Cooper allowed the passengers Schaffner senior flight attendant Alice Hancock to leave the plane. And the fueling process was delayed because of a vapor lock in the fuel tanker, uh, in the fuel tanker's truck, uh, the pumping mechanism. So basically a second truck was brought over to complete the task of refueling. Mm -hmm. And Cooper explained his demands for the next flight. He directed them to head to Mexico City as slowly as possible, a non-stop flight at, a, at as, as low an altitude as possible. So he, he directed the crew to, you know, the, the crew that was left behind after the rest had, um, had already, um, you know, gotten off board. He told them, you know, you gotta follow my demands. Yeah. And that's it, right? A non-stop flight um, with as low an altitude as possible. Yeah. And he also insist insisted that the cabin remain unpressurized or unpressured and for the landing gear to remain deployed in the takeoff, hmm. uh, takeoff landing position. And FAA of official requested a face-to-face -face meeting with Cooper, but Cooper said no. Which, I mean... Obviously, why would you want to, you know, face to face with an authority, right? Yeah. So Cooper grew impatient, saying that this shouldn't be taking so long, and sent a note to a crew saying that let's get this show on the road. <laughs> so he's getting impatient, right? But he he had to keep his cool. He's making demands. Yeah, exactly. The crew responded saying that these conditions would not allow for a nonstop flight, and they had to make a fuel stop. They agreed to stop in Reno, Nevada. The plane departed at approximately 7:40 p.m. with only Captain Scott F.A. Uh, only Captain Scott F.A. McClough, First Officer Radizak or Radakzak, and Flight Engineer Harold E. Anderson on board. Two F-105 fighter aircrafts 
were scrambled into the air following the 727 behind, one above the plane and one below. And few other planes or fighter planes also followed. Um, one of them being the Lock T-33, which was diverted from Air National Guard mission. Followed them. Um, uh, they followed after them, totaling five planes um, following the 727. Once in the air, Cooper asked McLeod to show him how to open the door shaft or the uh, the door to the aft staircase. Then ordered McLeod to you know um, to basically stay with the rest of the crew in the cockpit and you know made them stay inside with the door closed so that their you know their little space wouldn't be affected yeah. if something mm -hmm. is to go down he said right? leave me alone yeah basically and i mean that that, that is very thoughtful of him mm -hmm. to you know to really he really has the whole situation controlled like you know oh, yeah. he, all his words is, is like from being nice to all of this yeah, maybe that's how he was able to get everybody to cooperate so exactly, easily. Exactly, exactly. By being a nice guy. Yeah, because I mean, if if you start yelling in the plane, it's not going to Yeah, nobody's going to want to cooperate. Exactly. But if you offer them meals... <laughs> um, the flight attendant remembers last seeing him tying something around his waist. At 8 p.m., a warning light flashes to show that the F... Um, air steer apparatus had been activated. Then they noticed a change in air uh, air pressure. This indicated the aft door had been open. The pilots asked um, on the cabin intercom if Cooper needed any assistance, and Cooper picked up the phone and replied no. At 8.13, the tail of the plane um, sustained a sudden upward movement. This required heavy action from the pilot to regain control of the plane. Now at 10.15, they arrive at Reno, Nevada. The plane was surrounded by FBI agents, state troopers, sheriffs, deputies, and Reno police. But Dan Cooper was nowhere to be found. He was not in the plane. Wow. Okay. That is... That is... That, that must have been like really confusing for the authorities to find out like where the hell did he go <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know yeah i mean, I mean I, after everything that had been on the plane yeah you know like where could this guy possibly be gone yeah exactly gone to i mean since the since the cabin door was open he mm -hmm. would have had to make the jump and plus tina mucklow saw him tying something to his around tie, his waist around yeah. his waist yeah yeah, yeah. All right, so yeah, let's 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 dive into the investigation that the FBI um, did on this case. During this investigation, uh, FBI agents recovered sixty-six unidentified latent prints aboard mm -hmm. the airliner, along with Cooper's um, black lip-on tie, mm -hmm. um, two of four parachutes that was demanded early on. One of which was open with two shroud lines cut from the canopy. Okay. Authorities interviewed eyewitnesses in Portland, Seattle, and Reno. And series of composite sketches was developed. That's yeah. what you guys saw we earlier. We showed earlier. Yeah. During the questioning, a man from Oregon with a minor police record named D.B. Cooper contacted by the Portland authorities on a possibility that the hijacker used his real name or the alias from a previous crime. He was qu quickly ruled out 
but a local reporter, James Long, in a rush to meet deadline, confused the names of eliminated suspects with the pseudonym 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 used by the hijacker. A wire service reported a reporter, Clyde Javin of UPI by most accounts, and Joe Fraser of the AP by others, published the error, followed by numerous other media's. Who did the same thing? As a result, DB Cooper became the most widely remembered pseudonym. They wasted so many resources, like on the wrong guy. Yeah, exactly. It, because of this one guy, you know, rushing to complete the task. <laughs> that is, is that's that's a lot of time wasted. I don't know. Um, an eight-year-old boy um, actually found some of the money. Okay. 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 That's, that's pretty interesting. Okay, yeah. Let's, let's talk I mean... about that. So, Cooper actually had asked for the $200,000 in $20 bills. He was given 100 bundles worth 2000 each. They weighed a total of 21 pounds. Mm. The serial numbers of these bills were all recorded before being given to Cooper. A few months following the skyjacking, the FBI published the serial numbers and gave them to all the banks in attempts to find the stolen bills. It was 34 pages of serial numbers. Oh, Jesus. And nothing ever turned up. Wow. Yeah, and um, that is until February 1980, nine years after the skyjacking, an eight-year-old boy finds a bundle of decomposing $20 bills. 40 miles away from the alleged D.B. Cooper drop zone, it was at Tina Bar in Vancouver, Washington. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it was $5,800. Wow. Yeah. And um, the FBI was able to confirm the serial numbers to be a match. Yeah. Yeah. That it was it. They, this was the money. As far as we know, this is the one and only time that any of the D.B. Cooper has been found. Mm. In 2008, the then eight-year-old boy, now a 30-year-old man, put some of the money up for auction, and the bidding for some of the most intact bills started at $700, 750 wow. but ended up selling for $6,572.50. That is a lot. $20 bill. Wow. That is insane. That's crazy. Yeah. Look, wow, that is one lucky boy. Yeah. I mean, he didn't get to use it until 30 years later. But, hey, man, that's... He should have mm -hmm. at least been able to keep, like, more than just a bill. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Well, I, I think uh, I, I, don't, I think he was able to keep some of the money. Okay. All right. Well, yeah. Wow. That's good for him. Good for him. <laughs> now, let's talk about the search. Um, so, a precise area was hard for the authorities to figure out due to the aircraft speed or the environmental conditions along the way, which changes depending on location and altitude. All these elements... Um, affected Cooper's landing point considerably. One important thing to consider, as well as, um, is the length of time that he was free falling before he opens his chute, if he succeeded at all. None of the fighter pilots see anything exit the plane either. Not visually, not on the radar. Given the environment at night, clouds obscuring any ground lighting below. It would it would have been hard to notice a you know black clad human figure in pitch black 
So no T-33 pilots made visual contact with the 727. Mm -hmm. During the experimental recreation of the unfortunate event, Scott piloting the aircraft FBI agents pushed 200-pound sled out of the rear of the plane, which would produce the upward motion that I mentioned earlier, indicating that at 8.13 p.m., Cooper left the plane. He was not in the plane anymore after that. Yeah. All right? Okay. Um, initial ex extrapolations placed Cooper's landing zone within the area of the southernmost outreach of Mount St. Helens. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. A few miles southeast of Ariel, Washington, near Lake Merwin. Search, all, um, search also focused on Clark and Cowlitz counties encompassing the terrain immediately south and north, respectively, of the Lewis River in southwest Washington. Now, the FBI agents and sheriff deputies from those counties searched large areas of the mountains, the wilderness, on foot, by helicopter. They also did door-to-door -door, um, uh, searches from of, like, local farms, mm -hmm. which is... I mean that that would have been like the last resort to do, you know, like going yeah. door to door, and like house to house. Like, dude, have you seen this guy? Like, have you seen this man? <laughs> so yeah, but after all this, no trace of Cooper nor any of the equipment presumed to have left the aircraft along with him. And wow. yeah, they, nothing was ever found. The FBI also coordinated an aerial search using fixed-wing aircraft and helicopters from the Oregon um, Army National Guard along the entire flight path known as the Victor 23 in U.S. aviation terminology, but Vector 23 in most Cooper literature. All right. Let's see. Okay. From Seattle to Reno, although numerous broken... Um, treetops and several pieces of plastics, objects resembling parachute canopies were, you know, they were sighted and investigated, but it was not relevant to the hijacking at all. It was not part of the whole situation. Right. So it did not lead back to Cooper. So they found all this trash, basically. Yeah, all these trash. <laughs> and that had nothing to do with the case. Nothing at all. Interesting. <laughs> now, shortly after the spring thaw in early 1972, teams of FBI agents aided by some 200 Army soldiers from Fort Lewis, along with Air Force personnel, National Guardsmen, and civilian volunteers, conducted another thorough ground search of Clark and Cowlitz counties, again, the same area, for 18 days in March, and then an additional 18 um, days in April as well. Elect uh, electronic Exploration Company, a marine salvage firm, used a submarine to search the 200-foot um, depth of Lake Merwin, Two local women stumbled upon a skeleton in an abandoned structure in Clark County, and still it doesn't tie with the hijacking, but I'm glad that they found a, you know, dead woman. 
Wow. Uh, yeah. So yeah. In, in the search for D.B. Cooper, they find a dead woman's body. Yeah, yeah. Gladly. Uh, yeah. Gladly. I'm not saying it's, it's not it's not traumatizing for the people who found it, but I'm glad they did. Yeah. You know, because she, that body would have probably been missing for, like, more than... Uh, yeah, at least some good came out of it. Exactly. It was later identified as the remains of Barbara Ann Derry, a teenage girl who had been abducted and murdered several weeks before. Ultimately, the extensive search and recovery operation uncovered no significant material evidence related to the hijacking. But, I mean, again, I'm glad they found the missing... They found the missing person. Girl. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So there is a few theories to, as to who D.B. Cooper really is. Yes. Ralph Himmelsbach is a retired FBI agent who was originally in charge of the Cooper investigation. The FBI maintains that Cooper did not survive. So, I mean... Okay, yeah. okay. I mean, yeah, I mean, this is coming from the head, the guy who's the head of the investigation. Yeah, he's, he's firm, he's firm yeah. on, on, on Cooper being dead, and... I mean, that, that sounds to me that he just did not want to do a lot more work than, you know, he already done. Yeah, I mean, yeah. But, I mean, you know, hey, if you think he did sir, or he did not survive, then, yeah, we, we could have we found his remains like we did with um, Anne. Barbara and yeah. Barry. Yeah. Right? Right, right. You, you always find dead bodies. Actually, a uh, dang writer, he does uh, an investigation into D.B. Cooper, uh -huh. and he actually gets to interview um, this guy, Ralph Himmelsbeck. Okay. He, he, um, his 20-year-long investigation is documented in a three-hour-long video, which we'll link in the description who, for anyone who's interested. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's a long video. <laughs> a very long video. <laughs> um, in the video, he actually shows several mistakes made by the FBI. Yes. He maintains that the FBI just, was just trying to cover up, you know, the mistakes that they made during the investigation. Oh, yeah. I mean, they did not look good during this investigation at all. Yeah. Um, his interview with Ralph uh, shows, uh, shows him describing Cooper as... Uh, horribly vulgar uh, and using obscene language, which was actually not true. Mm. We already talked about. And Tina Mucklow herself can be seen in interviews describing Cooper as well-mannered and nice. Yes. So why would he lie about that? Yeah. Why? Why? What are you trying to hide or by lying? Yeah. Exactly. And Ralph also talks about three different airways they could have taken. And Dan, uh, you also said earlier, uh, Victor Twenty Three. Dan mentions that Victor Twenty Three was the only route that they could have taken based on the flight conditions made by Cooper. As we said, he said to fly as low of an altitude as possible, yeah. right? Yeah. And um, so Ralph also mentions that uh, the, it was pitch black and stormy, horribly stormy weather. Dan went to the original weather reporting station to find out the weather conditions of that night. And he says that the winds were around 15 miles per hour. So that means it, it, it's pretty nice. It, it was not storming. It was not likely. storming, that's for sure. It was, it was probably pitch black, yes, maybe, but yeah. it wasn't probably horribly uh, storming weather like Ralph is you know, claiming. Yeah, very interesting. Uh, also, the FBI lost the eight cigarette butts left by Cooper. Oh my god. Yeah, the, the the cigarette butts left by him at the crime scene, they're gone. 
And this was the only DNA evidence left by him, which could have been vital to the investigation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, because with these cigarette butts, you could have, you know, do freaking so many tests um, towards, you know, so many suspects. Mm Mm-hmm. And actually figure out who it is. You would have had to try to, yeah, get get a match to this. this yeah, get a match. At yeah, least, yeah. wouldn't be here talking. <laughs> you would know exactly who this person is. Yeah, exactly. at least. Yeah, but yeah. <laughs> uh, Dan argued that that Cooper couldn't have held the money and pulled the parachute cord at the same time because the parachute had a maximum op- opening speed of 120 miles per hour. Mm-hmm. And as we said, the plane was going at least 250, uh, 200 miles per hour. Yeah, 200 miles. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So uh, Richard McCoy Jr. is is who Dan Greider believes um, D.B. Cooper really is. Mm-hmm. Um, in 19... 19- 72, there was another D.B. Cooper-style skyjacking done by Richard Floyd McCoy Jr. Mm-hmm. McCoy made a few mistakes. He landed in Utah um, and was actually caught. Um, Dan mentions that Ralph had kept many details of the skyjacking away from the public during the investigation. So there's no way that Richard could have known the exact way Cooper done the job. Um, during the first time... During the first... <clears throat> During the time of the first skyjacking, McCoy was a college student who lived with his wife and her sister. Uh, up on the screen is a picture of Richard Floyd McCoy Jr. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess he kind of looks like him. Yeah, yeah, it kind of matches the sketch. Yeah, I mean, he's wearing a suit. <laughs> yeah, his ears are a little too big, though. Actually, yeah, his his ears are too big. His eyes are kind of also too round yeah his nose a little too wide yeah when you really look at him actually yeah yeah it doesn't really look yeah his his nose yeah but there is a book called db cooper the real mccoy which was written by two retired fbi agents um, which examines mccoy's case in great detail Mm. karen mccoy who is uh, Richard McCoy's wife, actually sues the authors of this book and gets it shut down. And that's why there were only a few hundred copies of it made. Mm. In, okay. yeah. in the book, it states that McCoy, uh, under the name James Johnson, had successfully skyjacked another Boeing 727, mm-hmm. Flight 855 of United Airlines. This was a flight from New Jersey to to Los Angeles with 85 passengers. Hmm. Mid-flight, McCoy escaped by parachute given by the crew and he had obtained $500,000 in ransom money. Police later searched his house following a tip given by a motorcyclist who gave McCoy a ride. (laughs) He said that McCoy had had a jumpsuit on and was carrying a duffel bag. (laughs) That sounds like uh, GTA. That's uh, messy. Yes, it's kind of funny. Um, From the search, they found the money and the parachute. But unfortunately, when McCoy was put on trial for the skyjacking, the prosecution was unable to use the money or the parachute as evidence because they did not obtain a proper search warrant. And McCoy's lawyer made sure of this. Jesus. But despite this happening, McCoy was still convicted and sentenced to 45 years in prison. Good. Some articles state that in August 1974, he escaped federal penitentiary by stealing a garbage truck and crashing it through main, main prison gra- gates. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Oh, dude. Yeah, he's a... Uh 
he's going back to jail after that. <laughs> well, actually, he was later found by the FBI, but lost his life in a gunfight against them. I see. Okay. Yeah. So Man, he, this guy was real Grand Theft Auto yeah, stuff. Yeah. Like, for real. For real. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Uh, Dan Greider actually interviewed both of McCoy's children and asked their for their opinions. Mm-hmm. For years, they didn't want to talk about it until recently. Now that their mother has passed away, they're more willing to talk. Yeah. They both say that Richard McCoy was D.B. Cooper. Mm. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, if, if, if I was them, <laughs> yeah. I'd probably be doing the same thing, <laughs> like, just, just for the sake of it. Yeah. You know what? Yeah. My dad, yeah, that's her dude. Yeah, yeah, that's him. That's what. <laughs> Whatever. And it, it's kind of fishy that um, they, they just start talking after, like, their mom passed. Right. So that that shows you more, like, maybe their mom would have been like, no, he's not. Yeah, maybe no, he was try- they were, she was trying to protect his name. Yeah. And, like, yeah. I don't know. But, hey, it's, it's whatever. Whatever they... Yeah. yeah. Exactly. So the second suspect we have is Kenneth Christensen. Yeah, now, he is a former Northwest Airlines employee. In the book Into the Blast, co-author Robert Belvins explains how Christensen had one life before the hijacking, and then after the hijacking, suddenly his life completely turned around. He was able to lend his sister $6,000 to buy a house, and then he used $16,000 to buy himself a house. Whoa. Yeah. Uh, This happened seven months after the hijacking, too. That's a lot of money. Yeah, and he was, you know, he was able to do this, um, somehow making $512 per month from Northwest Airlines. There's no way he could have made that happen with $512 per month. In seven months? In seven months? That's crazy. Lending your sister money, 6000 and then buying yourself a house, another $16,000. Mm-hmm. That's a lot. You cannot make that with 512 a month. Yeah, it's pretty pretty fishy. It doesn't don't add up. Don't <laughs> add up. Yeah. He was initially thrown out of the list of suspects because he did not match eyewitness descriptions. Mm. Cooper was said to be five ten, and Kenny was five eight. Mm. Eyewitnesses said that he didn't have enough hair either. Mm. Uh, they didn't believe that the hijacker had military training either. Uh, Cooper rejected the military issued parachutes. Right. He, he also chose the lowest grade parachutes during his jump. Up on the screen is a picture of Kenny. Yep. Yeah, he, uh, in his, uh, he's probably in his Northwest Airlines mm. uniform. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's yeah. it. <laughs> I, I think comparing it to the sketches, he has more of a resemblance to um, the sketch. Yeah, his eyes, I think. Yeah, I the eyes, the nose, and the ears. Yeah, that, a, little, a little bit of the facial structure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, you, you do a little editing with, like, a hair on him. <laughs> it could be him. Could be him. Now Kenny was a well-experienced paratrooper. Interesting. His brother Lyle had spoken in interviews on Kenny's deathbed. He said to Lyle, "There's something you should know, mm. but I cannot tell you." What the heck? He said this just before dying. <laughs> <laughs> no, that is something <laughs> for you to be doing on your deathbed. That is imagine, imagine, <laughs> imagine your your bigger brother, right? You know, on their deathbed, I'm be like, Glenn, I gotta tell you something, or I got something to tell you, but I can't. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what? Come on, what, what is it? Excuse you. 
Yo, what the heck? That is not funny, Kenny. <laughs> I mean, he could have just been messing with his brother. Nigga, yeah. that is not a good joke. I, mean, to be honest, I, I might do something to that tomorrow. <laughs> Like, oh, I gotta tell you something, but oh never mind. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shoot. Oh, man. Oh, oh man. That's funny. Um, yeah, he said this just before dying. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And Lyle also said that he wanted to pay before the hijacking, and after the hijacking, he stopped wearing it. Mm. Ooh. Okay. See, that's we, that's we, pretty key. We're right going there. somewhere. Okay, okay. Yeah, exactly. Uh-huh. And um, so they grew up together in the middle class. Mm-hmm. A- after after um, his brother's death, Lyle decided to examine his possessions and found an, a black Atashi case. Atashi case, yeah. Wow. Wow. Oh. I mean, probably could have been the same Atashi case that he was could, carrying on the been. hijacking, you know? Could have been. Wow. Yeah, Kenny joined the army right after high school, and he joined the paratroopers and trained to land in trees and water. Mm. And he was in the military for two years before getting a job at Northwest Airlines. However, he was never able to make a stable living from them because of constant labor disputes. There were eight strikes in Northwest in Northwest Airlines before nineteen uh, between nineteen fifty four and nineteen seventy one. Yeah, those strikes affected his income, and so he had to take odd jobs like working at hotels and digging ditches, and um, this would have been a pretty good motive for him. Yeah, most definitely, most definitely. Because yeah. I mean, he was only making about five hundred and twelve per month. Yeah, and that's that is nothing. There were eight strikes, eight strikes uh, for Northwest Airlines. Yeah, and that's... between nineteen fifty four and nineteen seventy one. Mm-hmm. So like. They weren't. They probably weren't very good employers. <laughs> yeah. Nah. I, I mean, I'm pretty sure, like you know, airports back then was pretty hectic. Mm-hmm. You know, there weren't so much of rules. It was almost like a bus stop. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like sky buses. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, and now these are just two of the suspects. Yeah. There's there's like a, a lot more. Yeah. There's, there's like a, a lot huge more. list that uh, we'll link down in the description yeah. below for you guys who are interested. Yeah. But yeah. but uh, I want to go back to this. Um, they were saying that there's um, he did not match the eyewitnesses' description. Mm-hmm. Um, Cooper was said to be five ten and Kenny was five eight. Mm-hmm. And his brother said. Uh, or one eyewitness also said that um, he didn't have enough enough hair. Now, his brother said that he used to wear a toupee. Mm-hmm. Okay, and then after this whole um, event happened, he started wearing just you know bald head. Mm-hmm. He took he took the toupee off. Yeah, that toupee could have been at least two inches, right, matching to the five ten that eyewitnesses. You know, saw <laughs> right, <laughs> right. And so we gained two inches. From yeah, yeah. Just, just, just from like you know, for the okay. hair, right. Mm-hmm. And then, what is that called? Um, he did not have enough hair. Obviously, <laughs> he was wearing toupee at the time that you saw him mm-hmm. on board. So, you know, as as soon as as soon as he got you know uh, let off for not having enough hair, yeah, that, that could have been the ultimate win for him. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And and there's more. Um, they they did not believe that the hijacker had military training. Yeah. Well, Cooper um, rejected military issued parachutes, right? Yeah. Kenny 
is a an ex-military, right? He served for like two years, mm-hmm. where he uh, what's that called? He was a paratrooper who trained to land on trees and water. Mm-hmm. Where, um, what what is that called? When he rejected the military issued parachutes, that means uh, what's that called? When he rejected the military parachutes. Mm-hmm. For me, that's him trying to hide his identity furthermore because of the fact that if they found out that he worked for the military, that means they would have his face somewhere in the system, mm-hmm. right? They would be able to match, you know, two and two together, yeah. right? And when he chose the lowest grade parachutes during his jump, you said that Kenny is a well-experienced paratrooper. Yeah. If you're a well-experienced paratrooper in a life, this, uh, the life and death situation, even if you have the most crappiest parachute, you would do some, you know, RNGesus stuff to, <laughs> you know, make you survive that fall. Yeah. With a with a messed up parachute. Yeah. With with his experience, he could probably make it happen. Exactly. So, I mean, that's like kind of like comparisons that um, or like um, what's that called theories that you guys could think about and maybe theories that they did not think about um, enough to you know guess something out of it's really interesting though like yeah is it Kenny? yeah is it it McCoy? Mm. Kenny I mean I mean Mm. you know it's it's a little shaky because they have some good like you know kind of like um, what is that called? Actions to support their um, their their own mm-hmm. kind of like theory. The case. So, yeah, their their own case. Yeah. But hey, it's just, like we said, these are just two people. Yeah. That out of so many um, suspects. So yep. if you guys find any more, you know, better similarities, uh, you know, better than these two, let us know in the comment below. Because we want to, like, you know, check them out and maybe, like, do the same comparison that we did just now. Yeah, let us know who yeah. your best guess is. Yeah, exactly. But as a real, little small trivia for you guys, lots of people believe that the disguise was inspired by a comic book character whose series was only issued in Canada. Dan Cooper is the name he, isu- uh, he used uh, to board the plane. It was also only in French. The series is about a military flying ace and a rocket ship pilot. You see what I mean, dude? Like, mm-hmm. the... the uh, what is that called? It, it just matches with Kenny a lot. You know, even with the comic book, kind of yeah. like, you know, working with, you know, the airline before that. Yeah. And being part of the military, you know. Mm-hmm. It, it screams Kenny to me. Right. Yeah. I wonder if Kenny could read in French. Maybe, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Could be. Yeah. French Canadian. <laughs> yeah. Um, so airline security in the 1970s definitely was not what it is today. You could drink and you could smoke and they didn't even check IDs. Yeah. After, yeah. after however, the, the Cooper hijacking, Boeing installed something called the Cooper Vane mm. on, on the rear doors of all Boeing 727 models. Wow. These locking mechanisms made it impossible to open the aft stairs from inside the airplane. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Now, now he got a part. Yeah, he made a pretty uh, big impact. Yeah, he got a part <laughs> named after him. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Cooper Vane. Exactly. Is, is something. 
that's very something i mean dude that's crazy that's really big like you know mm -hmm. upgrade that they had to do they made sure that this doesn't happen ever again yep and they can only open the back yep. from the outside that's it yep <laughs> um, good stuff <laughs> i mean now let me ask you this do you think db cooper survived the jump that he did on this on that night um in Dan Grider's video, it, uh, he shows himself making the same jump. Okay. Um, I mean, he did it during the day, though. Okay. He he shows that it's very possible to survive the jump. Okay. I mean, so if Dan, I'm not sure what kind of training that he has, but if he has the same training as D.B. Cooper trying to land on trees and water, mm -hmm. you know, while parachuting, mm -hmm. right? He could have done this maybe blindfolded, D.B. Cooper, you yeah. know, with, with that type of training. Because Dan was able to do it. I mean, it is in the daytime, yes. Mm -hmm. But with the kind of skills that um, Kenny had, it would have been so yeah. possible that you yeah. know, he was able to do that. Yeah, uh, the experience that he had, for sure. Yeah, yeah. So, um, um, which of the suspects do you... <laughs> think it could really be him well yeah i mean i, I kind of already said my answer that would be kenny Kenny, right yeah it just there's just a lot more details that matches the kind of like person that um you know um db cooper would be mm -hmm. you know like like um the witnesses said he was a nice guy and you know canadian hey for me, he, he looks kind of Canadian to me. Like you know, I, mean, I yeah, guess he, he, he kind of pa could pass as a Canadian. Yeah. He looks like a nice guy. Yeah. you can imagine like a Canadian like skyjacker, <laughs> like uh, offering to buy people meals. Yeah, that's kind of yeah. a bit thing. It's it's really funny to think because yeah, he did not want to harm anyone. You know, mm -hmm. he just has a grudge. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, what about everyone else, though? Like, let us know in the comment below what you guys think. Who do you think DB Cooper is? This is all. There, these are only two people out of so many possible suspects, but I think they match the most. And yeah, mm -hmm. if do you guys think that that he survived the jump? Did he die mm -hmm. like right on impact? Let us know. Let us know. Yeah. Who knows? Maybe the FBI is right. <laughs> yeah, maybe they are. Maybe he's just lying somewhere or, you know, dead, just mm -hmm. bones. Exactly, exactly. Decomposed with, you know, the rest of the money. Yeah. And yeah. never to be found again. Ever again. Ever, ever again. So, that is the D.B. Cooper case. Right. There's tons more to get into this case that we just don't have the time for. Mm -hmm. All our sources are linked in the description below for any of, the, any of you who's interested. And there's a huge list of people who are all suspected of being Cooper. Mm -hmm. uh, we hope we are able to shine some light for you guys today. And if you guys enjoyed today's episode, drop a like, comment, and please subscribe. It really helps us out. Yes, it does. With that being said, we'd like to welcome you all to the Night Parade. As always, my name is Jam. And my name is Glenn, and that's right. Welcome to the Night Parade. <laughs>